This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Um, would you turn with me to Matthew 16? That's where the scripture reading comes from this morning, the 16th chapter of Matthew. We'll start in verse 13 and read down through 20. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you again, Lord, uh, in the name of Jesus. Lord, looking to you, asking for help. Lord, we hold in our hands and have before us uh, such a precious gift, Your Word. Lord, we look to You because we're dependent upon You for understanding. Lord, we pray, grant that. Grant that we may uh, glean from this passage this morning what You desire for us to get. Open our minds and hearts up to it, Lord, so that so that we understand and so that it's applied to our hearts in such a way that our lives are affected by this truth, the truth of the person of Jesus Christ. And may it all be for your honor and glory in Christ's name. Amen. Be seated. We um, look at a couple of uh, questions this morning from the Lord, and one in particular uh, I would call the ultimate question, crucial, critical (laughs) to every human being, even though, of course, every human being wouldn't agree with that statement, and they certainly don't acknowledge the importance of it. Um, But these questions before us in this passage this morning deal with the the person of Jesus Christ. Um, who is He? And there, as we, just as we see in the text, there are, are many opinions, many ways of answering that question. Um, 
but uh, one correct way. Spurgeon said the voices of error are many. But there's one truth. And so it is with the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to try to deal with this morning. Now let me say this. I asked Zach to read through verse 20. I don't think we will cover all of that. Um, but I wanted him to go there because uh, of that, primarily because of verse 20. And kind of sums up what we're going to be talking about here. Um, again, Jesus' confession that He was the Christ. He commanded His disciples that they should tell no one that He was Jesus the Christ. That in itself seems a little strange, doesn't it, when we're commanded to tell everybody? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it just wasn't um, exactly time yet at this point. Okay, so let's go back to verse 13. First of all, this we're told by Matthew. This is when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Um, now, this this again is on the, the the basically the northern or northeasternmost border of uh, of Israel. So, so you're on the border of Gentile territory, and, and just as we saw with the um, the account of the Syrophoenician woman coming to Jesus asking for uh, deliverance for her her daughter, um, and I think probably this is an attempt by Jesus to uh, escape, you might say, or to separate himself from the Jews because his popularity, of course, had been growing and growing and growing, and so you you essentially had um, two 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 mindsets toward him, both of them wrong. Um, one was they wanted to take him and make him a king. I mean, they were seeing all of the miraculous things that Jesus was doing. And, and of course, uh, again, at this time, uh, we mentioned this before, but at this time in history, anticipation was high for the coming of the Messiah. And there had been many attempts. If you go back and, and read some of the history um, in the century or two preceding the life of Jesus, and, and then during that time and afterwards, there were many who stood up and tried to lead rebellions against the Roman Empire. A couple of them are mentioned in the book of Acts. Um, so anticipation was high at this point for the coming of the Messiah. And, of course, now here's a man who's not only uh, stands out in the crowd, so to speak, but he's, he's doing miracles. And so some of them are, are thinking, yes, this is the Messiah, but they've got uh, wrong thinking in terms of how how, how all that will play out and how his rule will uh, be established. They're, they're looking for a military leader. The other mindset is this, and of course that of the scribes and Sadducees and Pharisees, that is they want to kill him. They also see something unique in Jesus. They cannot deny the wonders, the miracles that he is doing. They cannot deny his wisdom that they are confronted with so many times and unable to answer. So they, they're not looking for him to bring about deliverance, not even political deliverance. Um, they see him as a threat. They see him as a threat to, um, to their rule and their authority that they have that is somewhat sanctioned uh, by the Roman Empire. They, they have kind of a, a moral... Um, Authority over the people, and uh, and they 
live pretty good. And so they're, they're threatened by Jesus. They want him dead. So that's probably why he's, he's kind of removed himself from the heart of Israel. And he goes to a place, uh, Caesarea Philippi, um, originally uh, named Paneus, Paneus uh, after the Greek god Pan. It was later changed. The name of it was later changed to Caesarea by Philip the Tetrarch. This is the son of one of the sons of Herod the Great. Uh, he did that to honor Caesar, and uh, also himself by attaching uh, Caesarea of Philippi. His name is Philip, and uh, and that's also to distinguish it from the other Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean. Um, so again, this is kind of the. Uh, northernmost or utmost border of the land of Canaan to the north. Okay, he's on the outskirts of Canaan, and now he's speaking to his disciples here. Now we've just read through uh, several conversations, Jesus being confronted with opposition primarily. One after the other. He's accused of all sort of things. He even accused of being in league with the devil. And as we noted, there are also those who uh, look to him favorably, but still have wrong-headed ideas, and they want to take him and make him a king. And so now he, here he is with his disciples. And in verse 13, it says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I... The Son of Man am. Now, this is the first question, obviously. And I'm just going to break this down just the way it is in the text here. You've got a question, an answer, a question, and an answer. So here's, here's the first question. He's, he's asking for the opinion of the crowd, the multitude. Not necessarily, again, not necessarily the, uh, the, fad, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He knows. I mean, we just got through talking about their opinion of him. <laughs> they say, this man cast out demons by the prince of devils. And I think what he's referring to here is the multitude of those who favor him, who, who see him as possibly being a deliverer, the Messiah. They, they are astounded by his, his works. And so he wants to know... What do they say about me? The people in general. The New American Standard says, Who do people, who do people say that the Son of Man is? This is a, a, a general question. What's the general consensus? Now, let me say this too. This is what is often referred to as the Socratic method of teaching. Um, it's named after, of course, Socrates. Uh, Socrates, his method of teaching was asking questions. And he would keep asking questions and keep asking questions of his students until he could get them to come to a conclusion by logical deduction. So he kind of guide them, in other words, by questioning. You know, they give an answer and then he has another question. They give an answer and he has another question until he gets them to form a conclusion. So it's been called... Um, historically, the Socratic method, um, but it's not unique to him. And I would even argue that even though Socrates, chronologically, um, Socrates lived in Athens about 400 B.C., before Christ, 
I would argue that Jesus was doing this before Socrates. <laughs> that may sound a bit confusing, but um, uh, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And uh, you, you can read uh, plenty of examples in the Scripture. Uh, uh, for example, you know, you read Job 38 through 40. And you will find the Lord asking question after question after question after question. You know, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And Job is uh, assumed by many, by the way, to be the the oldest book of the Bible. Uh, You know, so uh, there you have it. That's centuries before Socrates, okay? Centuries before Socrates. But it's called the Socratic method. It's kind of like Calvinism. You know, people, people... if, if you're familiar with the doctrine, uh, uh, doctrines of grace that are commonly called Calvinism, they were not invented by John Calvin. His, his name has been put on them. That's kind of the thing here. This was not invented by Socrates. Jesus often taught by asking questions. Now, why am I saying all that? Because uh, Jesus is not in doubt about what the people think. He, he's not asking to gain information. He's, this is a teaching process. He's, he's teaching his disciples something by the questions he asks. Um, I think one of the major reasons for, for this particular question and the one that follows is to sure them up. As Spurgeon points out, he's, Charles Spurgeon says, Our Lord was about to inform them as to his death. And it is well that they should have very clear ideas as to who he was. And that is where we're headed in this chapter. And Jesus will predict his suffering, death, resurrection. And, and we have just gone, as I mentioned earlier, through a, through a lengthy period of opposition. And yes, the disciples are already believers, but little by little, line upon line, precept upon precept, Jesus is... Increasing their knowledge concerning Him and strengthening their faith. And aren't you thankful uh, that He's still doing that with His disciples today? Um, so, he's, he's shoring them up. John Calvin, whom I mentioned a moment ago, says, quote, The design of Christ was to confirm His disciples fully in the true faith, that they might not be tossed about amidst various reports as we shall presently see. So, so Jesus is kind of shoring them up here regarding His identity. Now, I want you to notice something. Even in the question, He basically gives the answer. Not totally, but, I mean, you know, there's a couple of ways of taking this phrase, but, but he, he pretty much gives the answer in the question. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? I mean, the correct answer is Son of Man. That, that's a messianic title. One that one of them that was used, but again, his question is regarding the opinion of the people. So the disciples answer in verse fourteen, "Who who do people say that you are?" Verse fourteen, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, if you think about that answer for just a minute, it's strange. Why? Because these are all dead people. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. So the the crowds out there are actually thinking that um, 
they might not, hopefully they wouldn't use the term reincarnation, but that's almost what it seems like, right? That it's almost like they've adopted some form of reincarnation. Or at least um, they, they have an idea of the resurrection, but they're not viewing that correctly. So they're thinking, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Or um, Luke 9.19 says, one of the prophets raised from the dead. One of the prophets who has been risen. Some say Elijah, again, implied, raised from the dead or come back. Or Jeremiah, raised from the dead or come back. So that's it's strange. Almost a form of superstition. And, and, and that is still a problem today, even in the church, having superstitious ideas about the identity of Jesus Christ and treating Him as... Um, a good luck charm or, you know, just, just having all kinds of strange ideas about him, who he is. And let me just deal uh, real briefly with a couple of these, or, or maybe we'll get through all of them here. But the first, John the Baptist raised from the dead. Remember, that's what Herod thought. In fact, that's what Herod feared <laughs> because, because he had uh, murdered John the Baptist. And uh, then when he heard the reports, reports about Jesus and the miracles that Jesus was doing, Herod thought, it's John. It's John. He's come back from the dead. Um, so it, it, it frightened him, to say the least. That's uh, chapter 14, verse 2. But apparently some of the crowd, Jesus' admirers, had adopted that opinion as well. And then some said he was Elijah. And, and probably here... Um, I mean, it's possible they're either thinking Elijah raised from the dead, come back, or it's possible they're just thinking um, like he's come in the spirit of Elijah. But probably what they have in mind here is Malachi 4 or 5, where the Lord says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, that prophecy has been fulfilled, but who fulfilled it? Anybody know? John the Baptist, that's right. John the Baptist fulfilled that particular prophecy. He was Elijah. Not in the literal sense that he was Elijah raised from the dead, but he came in the spirit of Elijah, turning the hearts of the children to the fathers. That is, he was calling on the nation to repent and return to the true and living God. So that, that was actually filled in the person, fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. But uh, some of the Jews obviously would not have recognized that, and they're thinking maybe maybe this is who this guy is, this Jesus. Maybe he's Elijah. He's a fulfillment of Malachi four or five. Elijah sent uh, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And by the way, um, still to this day, in Jewish Passovers and. Uh, maybe maybe Leslie can testify to this firsthand. I don't know. I know I had a friend of mine that attended one several years ago and was telling me this, and, and I've also read it. Uh, but in, in Jewish Passovers celebrated today, they leave an empty chair for Elijah in case he shows up. <laughs> and a friend of mine went to a Gentile Seder, I, I guess it was, because I don't think they allow any Gentiles to go to the... Jewish Passover, but anyway, it was a, it was a Passover and uh, celebration, and the the rabbi uh, was explaining to him what they're doing, why they're doing it, and he told him about you know they had the empty chair there, and he told them 
about the empty chair. And, you know, it's, that's for Elijah, because Elijah is going to return before the end. And then a few minutes, a few seconds later, he leaned over to my friend and whispered, and uh, I can't quote him word for word here, but uh, he said, you know, if he really did walk in, it'd scare out of everybody. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I guess it would, you know, if Elijah walked in. So they, they actually leave an empty chair for Elijah. Now, that's what some of the people here are thinking. This may be him. Some of them said it may be Jeremiah. Now, that's interesting too. And one reason I'm going through these is because all of these are types of Jesus. So it's no wonder that the people identified him with Elijah and Jeremiah because all, and all the prophets, um, and John the Baptist included, because they're all types of Christ. They all point to Him. So maybe some of them thought He was Jeremiah because Jesus Himself, as we're told in Isaiah, is a man of sorrows. In fact, we find Him, don't we, weeping over the state of Jerusalem? He was troubled by sin and its effects. The state of the world. And so like the great weeping prophet, that is Jeremiah, like the great weeping prophet, uh, Jesus Himself was a man of sorrows. And then some of them just said, well, maybe He's one of the prophets. But again, all of these, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah, prophets, they're, they're, yes, they're like Christ. They have a, a likeness to Him. But even that is only partial. And Jesus Himself not only spoke the Word of God like all of those prophets did, but He is the Word of God in flesh. So, they're not recognizing... Uh, you know, they're kind of holding Him up in honor, but not recognizing the extent of His uniqueness He's the one true, only begotten Son of God. But the opinion of, of the world, uh, well, they come up with all, all kinds of answers, like, like we see here. Uh, even today, and I find this interesting, and I think this is one of the things in my mind that, that uh, testifies to the, the reality of Christianity, is that even today, some of the people who, who dislike or even hate Christianity the most find it hard to speak badly about Jesus. Now, I know part of that, a big part of that, is just uh, Satan's deception. In other words, if, 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 if he's just blatantly speaking against Christ, and, and there's some do, of course, but generally people have good things to say about him. But if, if, if people just blatantly speak against him, um, they're probably going to be less effective, especially in persuading us, right? But... Satan, the way that Satan works is through deception, and he comes as an angel of light. And so what people do typically is, is speak highly of him. Oh, he's a great 
teacher. In fact, some would say he was, he was the best. He was the best teacher ever. Or some won't go that far, but they'll at least say, well, you know, he's right up there on the same level, you know, with people like Confucius. Or maybe even more modern, you know, people like Gandhi. He's a great man. He's a light. One of many lights that God has shined into this world. Now, of course, all of those views are wrong, but I'm just pointing out that a lot of times people do try to speak favorably of Him. Like Pilate. Pilate examines Jesus and says, I find no fault in this man. But, of course, later he has little problem murdering Him. I mean, I know he, he, he tried to talk the crowd out of it and he washed his hands and said he was done with it, but he could have stopped it. And he didn't do that. So, he allowed a man in whom he found no fault to be executed. Just generally speaking, people speak well of Christ. Now, here's, here's the greater danger in my view. That is, that in the church, we would have these kinds of high views of Christ, maybe. You know, just... Hold him in honor, and yet, yet not really recognize um, his true uniqueness. Not really understand the depth of it. Not really uh, understand his infinite uniqueness. That is, he's he's not just a superman. He's not just an exalted man. He's a man of another. Kind. I mean, he's he, yes, he's fully man. He's like us in that he's fully man, but he's also fully God. So it's it's easy to give him an exalted status while at the same time bringing him down to a level that we're more comfortable with, not recognizing who He truly is, or even denying who He truly is. Again, to quote Charles Spurgeon, he says, Men make no discovery, yet men make no discovery of the Lord's true character by their own guesswork. Only those to whom He reveals Himself will ever know Him. So, that kind of brings us to the second question here. The first question is, Who do men say that I am? And the word there is, could be translated people, um, because it's not talking about men as in male. It's just uh, mankind. Who do men? What's the general consensus? Well, they think you're a special person. Some say you're John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets raised from the dead. Obviously, they think you're, you're great. You're unique in that sense, but still just a man. A man through whom God is doing great things. Now, here's the ultimate question in verse 15. Jesus personalizes it. Now, He's not talking about the consensus of the crowd out there. He says to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? This, this is the ultimate question for this reason. It's, it's inescapable. 
And it determines your eternal destiny. What Your answer to it reveals where you're headed in eternity. Who do you? Jesus, Jesus brings it down to a personal level. Now, we've, we've talked about what the crowd says, what the world thinks. We know, where, we know where the Pharisees and the Sadducees stand. I mean, there are those out there who hate Christianity, despise it, would like to rid the earth of it. And there are others out there who despise it, but are much more subtle about it. And what they try to do is form some, some sort of synthesis with it. In other words, we don't have to rid the world of it. Just let's just get rid of the present form. Let's 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 just bring it in, incorporate it along with everything else. Let's let's bring it down to a level that we can accept, that we can deal with. Let's just make it one of the many religions of the world on an equal status. Let's bring Christ down to that kind of status himself, as a matter of fact. An equal among many. See, the problem comes in most of the time when you're dealing, uh, when you're talking Christianity, usually the problem comes in with the exclusivism, when you, when, with the absolute claims. When you start talking about Jesus being the only way, not just a way, but the only way of reconciliation with God, that's usually where the trouble starts. A lot of people don't have a problem with another way because that validates their own. And a lot of people are okay with that. My way is valid. Well, yours can be too. And if you want to worship Christ, you, you worship Christ. And I'll worship whoever or I won't worship at all. Who do you say that I am? Every single person is faced with this question. The identity of Jesus Christ. In one, in one form or another, in one way or another, every, every single person is faced with this issue. Who do you say that Jesus is? How do you answer that? Is he just a good man? Is he just a great teacher? A great moralist? I mean, he had, he had great teaching about how we're to love one another and how we're to all act right, you know, treat others the way that we want to be treated. Or is he? Lord over all. King of kings, Lord of lords. Is He the one true, eternal Son of God? Who do you say that I am? This is, this is sort of like the final exam. <laughs> Jesus has been walking with the disciples, teaching with the disciples. And now we're headed toward Jerusalem for the final showdown with the Jews. Jesus is shoring up 
the disciples, preparing them with questions like this and with the teaching that He's going to do in the following verses concerning His suffering and death. Here's the final exam summed up in one question. Who do you say that I am? Well, Simon Peter, who uh, is not known for his shyness, answered. So often, he's the spokesman for the, for the crowd. And he answered in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Correct. Now, that's where the bells go off and, and the lights come on. Correct answer. You are the Christ. There's a definite article in front of the word Christ there. He's not talking about a light, a Christ, a anointed one, a prophet, one of many, one among equals. He's talking about somebody totally unique. The long-awaited Jewish Messiah in the Hebrew. The word is Messiah. It means anointed one. God sent, God anointed for a purpose to save, to rescue, to deliver His people, to reconcile His people to Himself. And He's been promised, that is the Messiah, the Anointed One, has been promised ever since Genesis 3. Immediately following the fall of man, recovery is spoken about. By the Lord, when He gives prophecy concerning the seed of Edom, uh, of Eve, rather, He's the long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah. Peter gets it. The rest of the disciples get it. Not totally, but they do understand this: this is the Messiah. They don't understand everything about how His rule is going to manifest. We're going to see that they're shocked at His arrest and suffering. They don't understand how it's all going to play out, but they're convinced at this point Jesus is the Christ. Christ, by the way, comes from the, the Greek word. As I said, in the, in the Hebrew, it's Messiah. In the Greek, it's Christos. The meanings are the same, the anointed one. And so, in English, it is Christ from the Greek word Christos. You are the Christ. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Isn't that amazing? We still have today a whole religion called Judaism that rejects their own Messiah. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. If you look back just for a moment to chapter 1, this is the point that Matthew is making all through his Gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David. That, by the way, is another messianic title. In other words, a title used for the, for the Christ. Son of David. Son of Abraham, another one. And so is um, Son of Man. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. And then if you look at chapter 1, um, verse 15... At the, at the end of the genealogy there, I'm sorry, verse 16, at the end of the genealogy there, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Christ. 
And then when he gives a little breakdown in verse 17, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David unto the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ. And there's the definite article again. The Christ are 14 generations. Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ. He's the Christ. And Peter recognizes that. You are the Christ. The Son of the living God. Now, I don't even know if Peter fully understand that. I doubt it because I don't think any of us fully understand it. But I'm, I'm not sure what kind of grasp Peter had on the deity of Christ. But let, let me just illustrate the, the significance of this statement this way. What is born of humans? <laughs> when humans have babies... Humans. <laughs> human beings. Human beings beget human beings. Same nature. In other words, the children have the same nature as the parents. The term Son of God means that He is of the same nature, the same essence of God. He's not a different kind of being. Human beings don't bear puppies. Human beings have Human beings, the Son of God is of the same nature as the Father. Now, He was never uh, begotten in the sense, the same sense that we are. He's the eternal Son of God. So the old uh, divines, the old theologians have said it this way, He's eternally begotten, not made. That's how they distinguish him from being a creature. Eternally begotten, not made. He's of the same essence and nature of the Father. Now again, whether Peter fully realized that or not, it's built into that statement. This is a confession of faith. You know, we've been talking about confession of faiths on Wednesday nights. That's what this is. What do you, what do you believe about Jesus Christ, Peter? That He's the Messiah. The Messiah. The Son of the living God. That's the correct answer. And Jesus says in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. We've seen that word blessed before. Remember the Beatitudes? The Sermon on the Mount? Anybody remember what it means? Happy. That's right. It's just a word for happy. Makarios. Blessed. Happy are you, Simon Barjona. What's there to be happy about? What's, what's there to feel blessed about? Jesus here is here speaking of the blessed or blessed nature of the Christian. Because it applies to all of us, not, not to Peter alone. Happy are you. Why? Because God has revealed something to you that not everybody gets. Verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Barjona just means son of John. That was his daddy's name. That's how they were identified, usually. Son of so-and-so. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father, 
who is in heaven. You know what Jesus is saying? You've, you've been graced with this knowledge. You didn't, you didn't achieve this on your own by your own intellect. You didn't get it from going to school. You didn't get it because you, you're just naturally smart. It didn't come from natural sources, flesh and blood. Thank God for intelligence. And I mean that. <laughs> a lot of times, people, and we tend to, in an effort to be spiritual, uh, we pretend that intelligence is no, uh, you know, has no benefit. There's nothing to it. Listen, our, our intelligence is part of being made in the image of God. It, it is awesome. It is one of the things that sets us apart from the animal kingdom. I was listening to a, a, a commentator the other day, and, and I thought this was just a great point to make. You remember about a week ago, the guy released all these animals, 56 animals up there in Ohio, and the police they had to call in the SWAT teams and everything because there were Bengal tigers. I think there was 18 Bengal tigers on the loose and lions. And bears, I know it sounds like Wizard of Oz. I'm not going to start singing, okay? But lions and tigers and bears and monkeys. And, I, and, and monkeys aren't pleasant. I know they look cute and everything, but you, but you don't want to come up against one. Um, they're, not, they're not pleasant. So all these wild animals on the loose, and the police had to just go through there gunning them down. Now, I'm making it sound ugly for a reason. Now, sure, there are groups like I, I didn't. I didn't even see anything in the news from PETA, although I'm sure, I'm sure they probably had some statements to make. But why weren't people in an outrage that the police were just gunning down these innocent animals? I mean, even even the crowds you normally hear from on the far far left politically, and the ones who you know are fighting now for. Uh, rights of, of uh, animals. There's a, a lawsuit going on right now. Um, of course, it was brought by PETA uh, just about a, a week ago um, saying that these orca whales, uh, their constitutional rights are being violated because SeaWorld is holding them in captivity. Now, this is for real. I know it, it's, uh, it ought to be a joke, but it's, it's for real. Uh, it's really happening. So, so why wasn't the whole country just in an uproar because the police are gunning down these animals. Because there's a difference. And most people know it down deep. I think everybody knows it down deep. They know it down deep. And if the police SWAT team went out gunning down people, there would be an uproar. But they're, they're shooting wild animals. And people know there's a difference. Intelligence, intellect is one of the things that separates us from the animals. If, if it didn't, I mean, if they had it, you, you, you could have just reasoned with them. You know, you could have sat down with these Bengal tigers and, and uh, you know, just talked them into acting rationally. But you don't arrive at this kind of truth. I mean, as, as amazing as our intellectual ability is, and I know some of you are looking at me thinking, yours is not really that amazing, but... <laughs> <laughs> I've, I mean, I've heard it said we use like, I think this is a true figure, we don't even use a 10% of what our brains are capable of doing. 
I mean, God has just given us incredible intellectual ability, uh, even the dumbest among us. You know, we're, we're set apart from the animals. And yet, you, you can't arrive at this truth by, by mere intellectualism. Jesus telling Peter, you, you didn't get this from flesh and blood. You didn't inherit it. That is this knowledge. You have a whole society here who does not understand who Jesus is, and Peter and the other disciples know you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus is saying, you didn't get this by natural sources. It's not because of your bloodline. It's not because you're so smart. It's not because of your education. This is revealed information. It's, it's divinely imparted. Now, sometimes we wonder, why doesn't the world get it? You know, I explain the Gospel to them. They have all the same information I have. They can look at the same evidence that I look at. it. Why don't they see why don't they come to Christ? Because this is divinely imparted knowledge. It comes from one source. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is revelation from God. Now, think about that for a moment. Sometimes we, we think, of, you know, we look at the stories of the prophets, we, or we go to a book like Revelation, and it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? All the things, the visions and things that God is giving John the Apostle. And we think, boy, I would like to, I would like to have a revelation. I'd like for God to reveal something to me. Well, if you're born again, He has. If you know Christ, He has. If you can pick up this book and read it and believe that it's the Word of God, then He has. That doesn't come from any other source. Now, I could give you a lot of reasons historically, for example, on why to believe this book is true. I mean, the evidence is there. We have over 5,000 ancient documents of the New Testament. That testify to the accuracy of it. That it, you know, as it, as it is copied down through the centuries. And yet, people can view that evidence that is overwhelming and still deny this is God's Word. So something else has to happen. The physical evidence alone doesn't do the trick. Years ago, Josh McDowell produced a book that I to this day haven't read. I think it's somewhere on my to-read list. Uh, and that's just, you know, in my head. So, But it's somewhere on that list. <clears throat> what I understand, it's a good book. But it's called Evidence Demands a Verdict. But he lays out 
all of these reasons, some, some along the lines of what I was just talking about, the, the, uh, the manuscript evidence that we have. But he starts the book out by saying essentially this. I'm going to give you all the reasons why you should believe, but, but, th- but these things, as true as they are, aren't enough to convince you. Unless God opens up your understanding and reveals Himself to you, you won't believe. This is divinely imparted information. Jesus says, you're blessed. You're blessed, Peter, because you didn't get this from flesh and blood. You didn't get this from any natural source. This is knowledge imparted to you from my Father. Remember uh, chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus says, I thank you, Father. Matthew eleven twenty five. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. It's, it's divinely imparted information and God is sovereign in the impartation of it. When Simon Peter answers the question correctly, Jesus knows where he got it from. And by the way, he knows his heart. He knows he's not, you know, just spouting off, uh, parroting something he's heard. This is what he believes. You're, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And so Jesus says, you got that from my Father. One more passage along those lines. Go, go with me for a moment uh, briefly to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just to help make this point. In verse uh, 16, 1 Corinthians... 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Natural man just just meaning uh, someone apart from Christ, someone uh, who's not saved, has not been born again. The natural man, and that that would be sort of a synonym for uh, the, the flesh and blood Jesus was talking about. It, it does, this kind of understanding doesn't come from a natural source. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. And of course, that word can, C-A-N, speaks of ability. He's not able, in other words. Nor is he able, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So, the, the things of God are... Out of the realm of the natural man, it's, it can't be grasped, can't be reached. And so Jesus says to Peter, in essence, you've answered correctly, and it's because God has made it known to you. Who do you say Jesus is? The Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you got that by revelation. God revealed this to you. 
Now, let me just close with this. And as I said, we're not going to go through the next few verses uh, this morning. Just notice verse 20. He commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, this, this is a rare thing for Jesus to do. In fact, he didn't, he didn't really do it publicly. That is, say that he was the Christ. Um, another example, uh, uh, an exception maybe, although it's not a crowd, John 4, talking to the woman at the well, he, he makes it known to her that he's, he's the Christ. I mean, when you see that, take notice, because it's rare. At least as far as what we have recorded. We don't, we don't know of many instances of that. Another one is in John 9. Jesus heals a man who's blind from birth. And it, that, that's a long story in John 9. And it's, you know, it's, it's, an exciting, <laughs> it's an exciting account. Um, it, Jesus heals this man. Ultimately, the man is uh, cast out of the synagogue. That is, you know, like excommunicated from the synagogue. And so Jesus comes back to him and says, you know, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, tell me who he is that I may believe. And Jesus says, I that speak to you am he. There's another rare occasion where Jesus tells somebody He's the Christ. And that's what He's doing here with His disciples. He's, he's making it plain. He's speaking with clarity. I'm the Christ. Now, don't tell anybody else. It's just not time yet. Because again, they were wanting to take Him and make Him a king by force. And that's not where He's headed. Where He's headed is to the cross. And you see that in verses uh, in, in the next few verses. The rest of the chapter, really. 21 through 28. He begins to talk about his suffering and death and resurrection. But he's now making it plain to his disciples. I'm the Christ, Son of the living God. God in the flesh. Now, real quickly, what is the significance of being the Christ? He's the only Savior. He's the only Savior. He came to rescue us. Now, I said the first mention of the promises in Genesis 3. Well, what happens in Genesis 3? The fall of man. Adam and Eve sin and plunge themselves and the whole human race into spiritual death. So that every human being born since Adam and Eve is born in Sin. David said, in iniquity, my mother conceived me. He doesn't mean that his mother was a sinner and she was, you know, she was doing a bad thing when she conceived me. No, he means, when she conceived me, I was sinful. In iniquity, my mother conceived me. And that's true of every human being, with the exception of one, and that's Jesus Christ, who knew no sin. And so immediately when Adam and Eve fell and the curse, curses are being pronounced, God gives hope of a Redeemer, a coming one. Your seed, the Lord says to Eve, shall crush the head of the serpent. He'll bruise his heel and he'll crush his head. And then throughout the Old Testament, those Promises are reiterated and, and expanded upon so that little by little more detail is given. So in Genesis 15, for example, to Abraham, God says, from your seed, in your seed, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. 
And what he's doing is promising reconciliation. What was lost in Adam and Eve, that is, Adam and Eve sinned, fell into spiritual death, plunging us into spiritual death, which means we're separated from God. We're separated from our Maker. And the promise of the Messiah is a promise of restoration. So when Peter says, you're the Christ, what he's saying is, you're the only hope. You are our hope. You are our Savior. You're the anointed one. The one whom God has sent to rescue us from death. I'll leave you with this thought this morning. Probably heard it before. C.S. Lewis wrote years ago, and this is also included, by the way, in Josh McDowell's book, Evidence Demands Verdict. C.S. Lewis wrote, Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or He is Lord. He didn't leave room for any other opinion. He clearly claimed to be Lord over all. He clearly claimed to be the only way of reconciliation to God. He clearly claimed to be the only hope for us. John 14.6, for example, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That's one of those absolute claims I was referring to earlier that starts trouble in a conversation. He clearly claimed to be God in the flesh. John 8.58, He said before Abraham was, I am. We are clearly taught in Acts 17 and in Corinthians that Every person will stand before Him in judgment and be judged according to His Word. Jesus Himself taught that in Matthew 25. Clearly, that He is the final and ultimate judge before whom every single human being will stand. He clearly taught those things. And I would add emphatically so, He's either a liar or he's a lunatic. You know, he believed it himself, but he was crazy. And there's only one other option. And that is that everything he said is true. And he's Lord of all. Now I ask you, Who do you say Jesus is? What you believe, how you answer that question, what you believe regarding the person of Jesus Christ will impact you for eternity. It literally, I'm not overstating it, it literally has eternal consequences. Would you stand, please?
If you are here this morning and do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, perhaps up to this point you have not believed, but now perhaps the words of God that we have read and discussed here are burning in your heart, then there's one thing for you to do, and that is cry out to Him. For mercy. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no special procedure to be followed. Just that you believe. Believe on Him. Trusting in Him for eternal salvation. Trusting Him as Lord of your life and submitting to His Lordship from this point on. You say, well, how, how do I do that? Pray. You pray. You go to Him in prayer. You ask Him for forgiveness. You submit to Him. Sincerely and prayerfully. Asking for His mercy. Let's all pray. And if you are here this morning and you do know Him, then, then be in prayer for those who may not. And pray that all of us um, would come to terms with these truths in a, in a, in a real way so that our, our lives are really impacted on a daily, a daily basis so that we're faithful to get the Gospel out to those who need to hear for their good and for His glory. Let's pray. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80. Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.